Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Good morning, man, it is good to see you guys. We say welcome to all of you joining us online and uh, continuing in our series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we are excited to have you with us. If this is your first time, whether either online or in person here, first of all, we are excited and honored that you joined us in worship this morning. And I pray as we work through the book of Hebrews together this morning that God ministers and blesses your life and, uh, and truly grows your life in the understanding of who He is and who Christ is and what He has done for us. Uh, church, we are in week 14 of our journey through the book of Hebrews. So about three and a half months so far working through uh, this book. It was, we've taken somewhat of a deep dive into the book of Hebrews with a, a couple of stops along the way, and we'll have a couple more into the fall. But uh, we are in chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, either electronic or hard copy, you want to join me in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, if you've missed any of the messages so far or, or any of the studies so far, we do have everything online. So if you want to go back and, and get caught up or fill in maybe a place you might have missed here or there, carolinaforce.org, just go to the message section and you'll see all of the messages out there if you want to uh, catch up or maybe even go back through because sometimes the text, there's a lot there. And, and really one of our hopes is that... Uh, it stirred you. It stirred us, and uh, in the blessing that it has been to us, that it stirred that hunger to grow more in God's Word, to study more, to, to dig in more, to want to know more, as God will illuminate that through His Spirit into our hearts and minds. And so, hopefully, that continues today. I'm excited about our text today as we get into it from Hebrews. And, and on the surface, it may look complex, but I hope you will see as we get into it, it's a little more clear to understand um, than maybe it looks like on the surface. And it's full of hope. It's full of encouragement. It's full of strength and confidence and assurance. And, and I truly believe that all of us need more of that. We can use some more of that. I don't think we'd ever turn that down from God's work in our lives. And so I'm excited for our text. It's a little maybe easier than the last time I was with you and the privilege and the blessing of sharing God's word out of chapter 6. So, so as we get into this today, last week... Tyler introduced us to a gentleman in chapter 7. He introduced us to somewhat of a mysterious Old Testament priest named Melchizedek, or as he referred to him as Mel. <laughs> and our introduction to Mel in the first part of chapter 7. So there was a setup there that the, that the author of Hebrews, and he's really, he's mentioned uh, Mel a couple of times. He's hinted at Mel uh, in the leading uh, parts up to chapter 7, but as he, he's really setting, our, our author setting us up to show us again what we've entitled this series at the beginning, Jesus is greater, Jesus is superiority, and that he is a high priest forever. And so this is going to continue through chapter 7. We're going to pick 
pick back up in the finish of chapter 7 uh, into chapter 8. You're going to kind of, this theme of Jesus being a high priest forever is going to continue for a couple chapters. And so my hope is this morning, though, as we see it tied together, it will tie into the main theme, the showing the superiority of Jesus as we remember the original audience, the original audience of Jewish Christians or, or really to any of us as well who have been tempted to think throughout our lives or right now in this time of our life that there is some uh, there is some sense in which Jesus is optional in a relationship to God, that he is just a part or a component or a piece of a relationship with God, that he's optional. And so, so the author of Hebrews is coming against that to proof and to evidence that he is not optional. He is central to our relationship with God the Father. And so as we get into our text, let's understand this is all about our access to God. It's all about how we draw near to God, as we'll see within the text. One commentator says, access is the heart application of this passage. Verse 19, as we'll see in just a little bit, um, the, the, the writer says, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so this is about our access to God through our high, high priest, Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand that. We have to understand why it's absolutely essential that Jesus was a priest according to the order of Mel or Melchizedek. If we're going to understand why it's absolutely essential that we draw near to God and Jesus Christ only and in nothing else. No person, no thing, or no activity, or no work. It's only in Christ that we draw near. That when we draw near to God and Jesus, we have no fear of rejection. There is no fear there. We have a hope. We have a hope for perseverance. We have a reason for assurance. And we have a solid ground to set our feet on throughout our Christian life. And so I want to jump into chapter 7, verses 11 through 22 today. And we're going to just read a little bit and talk. So we'll start in verse 11. Continuing from last week. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? And so what you see here is our author presents a question. He presents a question for them to think on as he ends that verse with a question mark. He's, he's trying to stir them again to think about what, what's happening here, what Jesus has done as he's come. And, and, and he's trying to you know, present Jesus as the superior, greater high priest. So we begin with the author telling us the old priesthood that they knew and understood was insufficient. And it was replaced, and it needed replaced because it could not bring people to perfection. Meaning it could not bring us into the presence of God and stand before God again, access. It could not bring us into the access of God because we must be perfect to stand before God and none of us are perfect none of us and I, I shared this earlier and I think it's just we could continue to remind ourselves this but if we're really honest with ourselves if we're really honest, if you and I are not, not trying to deceive ourselves, not trying to be, you know, inflate our egos or anything like that, but if we're looking at the person in the mirror, if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that we're not perfect. We know that we're not perfect. And if you have a, a, a close group of friends around you, or if, you're, or if you're married, just ask your spouse if you're perfect. We know 
So let's not lie to ourselves. Let's understand that, that we are not perfect, but there is someone who is, who was for us. And so the author is trying to stir this understanding that our access to God had to be with perfection. So therefore, the old priesthood was insufficient and was replaced because it couldn't bring people to perfection. It's not that the priest through the lineage of Aaron were deficient. It's not, that's really not the argument here, right? The argument is that they were not designed in the economy of God to bring about the fullness of which God envisioned in occurring in the new covenant. After the time of Jesus in, in Pentecost and the time of the new covenant ministry, He's saying that the old covenant priests, by God's own design, were never intended to represent the fullness and the culmination of God's work among his people. It was never meant to do that. Therefore, if it wasn't meant to do that, it's insufficient. Jesus' ministry was that culmination. God never intended the old covenant priesthood to be permanent and to achieve the things that he did intend to be permanent and achieve through the priest of his son, the high priest forever. And so the author, and there, again, there's a logical flow here as we look at this. The author is showing us if sanctification and assurance have been achieved through the old system, through the old priesthood, there would not have been a need for Christ's priestly work. But in view of the fact that Christ did come as a priest, it must mean that the old system was not able to achieve, to succeed, to bring full assurance of hope, Full sanctification as God desires for his children, for us. And again, if the old priesthood had been capable of bringing about that kind of believing maturity, the hope, that assurance that we have that God desires for us to have together, then there would be no need for Jesus. There would be no need for Jesus. And, and that is what the author is presenting to our original... So, and I'm going to bring this up several times today... If we would pause just for a minute and try to, try to sit in the seat of the original audience. And it's really difficult for us, but if we can, just take a moment and try to understand the audience of this letter. And the first time they're hearing this, that, that convincing them that Jesus is greater. And for us, too, to, to convince and remind us that Jesus is greater. And the fact that Jesus has come is the reminder that the old priesthood was a shadow the reality to come in, in Jesus, which we've mentioned in and talked about in past messages throughout Hebrews. See, oftentimes I don't think we think of the benefits that we have in the new covenant as new covenant believers because we've never experienced the other. So again, just allow yourself for a second to, to think of the, the, the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians here hearing this you could allow yourself to, to think for a second what they knew. I mean, we've never experienced what it would have been like to go every year to Jerusalem, lay our hands on, on bulls and, and, and goats and take our hands off of them and then watch the priests take that animal and sacrifice them. And I won't go into detail what that sacrifice looks like. I'll allow you to fill the picture in or go through the Old Testament and you can see it and know that they're going to have to come back after all that. They're going to have to come back and do it again next year and the year after and the year after. Reminding us again that our sins need to be forgiven. I mean, can we grasp? That's there. That's what, they, 
That's how they lived. That's what they knew. We, you know, we, they've lived like that for centuries. We've always looked at the cross. We've been on in the New Covenant ministry, in the new, as New Covenant believers, we've looked at the cross, and we've known that our sins were dealt with. They were dealt with right there on the cross, and there is no need for a further sacrifice. There is no need to go back Because that sacrifice was perfect. What an amazing thing that the author is trying to point us to as he's trying to point that audience to. And for us to understand, it's the basis of our security and our assurance before God that this was a perfect sacrifice. So the question that that he would present to them showing that Jesus has come as a priest, as the high priest forever, and he presents to us, what stands you and I before God? See, in the old system, they had to go every year on the Day of Atonement, make their pilgrimage to go lay hands on bulls and goats to watch the sacrifice for the atonement of their sins. What, What stands us... Before God, nothing about us, nothing about us, nothing within us, but Christ stands us before God, only Jesus Christ. Christ in his priestly work stands us before God. And that is an incredibly important message that the author of Hebrews is teaching us because it's a new hope that we don't have to go back, that we don't have to live out that system of atonement. It's a new hope. Can you imagine, again, how the, how the Hebrew hearers would have heard what he was saying? If they were hearing this, they would, have, they would have heard it. Wait, perfection wasn't, perfection isn't attainable through, through the very life and routine that we've done for centuries that our grandparents and great-grandparents and, and, and father, and, and it's just passed down. You Wait, that's not, that's not the way? Our author is preparing, he's preparing them for for them to hear something so much more beautiful, something so much more beautiful, the beautiful truth that God's grace-filled work is only realized in Jesus Christ, and it is done. That's our assurance. That is our access. Our drawing near is only in Jesus Christ, and in no one and nothing else will allow us that access. So let's keep going, verses 12 to 17. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And once again, our author in his operational mode, if you've been with us uh, throughout this series, you know that he likes to quote uh, the Psalms. And here's another quote from Psalm 110 there in verse 17. So in verse 12, we understand that the law, as he speaks about the law, that there needed to be a change. Now, we have to understand that the law was not useless. 
It was not useless, completely useless, and we're going to see another verse in our text today that kind of makes it sound like it is, but it's not completely useless. It came from God and it had a a purpose, but its purpose was to enhance our awareness of our own sins, as one commentator. The, The law was to show us, as we did that assessment in the mirror together, as we all looked in the mirror at ourselves, and as we did that assessment to realize that we are not perfect, the law was to help us have that enhancement of awareness that, that we are not perfect, that we have sin within our lives. So Paul, even the Apostle Paul speaks to the work of the law in his own life. In Romans 7, he talks about when he learned that coveting was a sin, he realized in, that, in the law showing and pointing out that coveting was a sin, that he was sinning because he coveted. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the law helped him understand death from life. 2 Corinthians 3 That there was no life in and of itself by what he could do, but only death, and that life came through Christ, and the law pointed to that. And one more thing the law did was instruct and reinforce the necessity of an atonement. It reinforced and instructed this, this necessity that there had to be atonement from the very beginning there was, there, was requi- there was a shedding of blood required for sin. From the very beginning, you can go all the way back in the beginning of the, of the Old Testament, you'll see that the, re- the sin required the shedding of blood over and over, which is, again, the old priesthood. They went every year in the Day of Atonement, and they would sacrifice the bulls and goats, the shedding of blood over and over. The law was also a teacher. Galatians 3.20 Four teaches us that the law was a teacher, or you could say the law was a tutor. Our, our ESV version uh, translates that guardian. To do what, though? What was it a teacher of? What was a guardian of? What was a tutor of? To lead us to Christ is what the verse says. To lead us to Christ. That's what Paul was teaching in Galatians. He was saying, listen, the law has a use, and it was, its use was to be this big arrow, this big pointing arrow leading us to Christ to show and to remind and to teach and to explain and to, to really to expose the fact that you and I can't do this, that we are sinful. When we're really honest, we know we're not perfect 24-7, 365, every day of our life. But there was one was pointing to Jesus. The law made nothing perfect, as our text will say in a minute. Now, in this part of our text, the author tells us that this new priesthood is not based on that law. It's not based on the law of Moses or the ceremonial law set forth at the time of Exodus. It's a different priesthood. And he argues that since the the old covenant priesthood was based upon God's given law in Exodus, when we see a change in the priesthood, it must mean there was a change in the law which was very important for our hearers of this letter. It's what they knew. It's what they understood. There was a lot of ceremonial laws. There were a lot of pieces to this. And we see the argument that he gives here in the text that we just read. There's two parts to this, verses 13 and 14. He says, let me read these. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. And he's talking about Jesus He belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah in connection with the tribe. With that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priest. So his first part of his argument is that Jesus didn't come from what the law said the priests were to come from. He didn't come from that tribe. The tribe that the law said was was the priest was the tribe of Levi. 
Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. He descended from the tribe of Judah. And he also says that, that he belonged to this other tribe from which no one, no one else had ever served from that tribe. So there's, here's, that's the change, right? He says it's obvious that there's been a change in the law because it did not allow someone from that tribe to be a priest. And yet Jesus was a priest. That must mean then, here's how the flow, the logical flow is, he must be a priest in accord not in accord with those ceremonial laws established at the time of Exodus. He goes on to argue that this is also obvious in light of the requirements for Jesus' priesthood, according to the order of Mel or Melchizedek. Look at verses 15 to 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who was not like the other priest, as we saw last week in Pastor Tyler's uh, teaching us and introducing us to Mel who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Again, Jesus didn't descend. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. But look at what he says. But by the power of an indestructible life. So what is he saying? He's saying that Jesus' resurrection, Jesus coming back from the dead, Jesus resurrecting out of the grave is confirmation that his priesthood is not temporary. It is eternal. And by connecting him to Melchizedek, who we know from last week's text in chapter 7, the first 10 verses, we know this about Melchizedek or Mel, as it's presented to us from the book of Genesis, that, that we don't know when he was born or when he died. And so there is an eternality to Melchizedek or Mel there that he's connecting Jesus to. So, he draw, so the author draws from the fact of, of that eternalness of Melchizedek and his priesthood. And he says Jesus' priesthood is eternal. And that his resurrection confirms. That is the confirmation that is Forever, It is eternal, and we can see it because he raised from the dead. Now, what does that mean for us? His priesthood did not end. In the old system, the priests would die. All the old priests died. They all died. And you didn't know from year to year if the priest died or not. You don't know if there would be a new priest. Jesus, though, continues to be a priest forever according to the order Melchizedek, why is that important? Again, it's important for us in our understanding Jesus' priesthood. And there's going to be more on this, but it means that he has ongoing, ceaseless intercession for us. Ongoing, ceaseless intercession for us. That is very important to our assurance. That is very important to our daily walk with Christ in our Christian life. That, that Jesus is interceding right now as you and I gather in his house. Right now as others around the world gather in his house. When I was in Costa Rica a couple weeks ago, when we gathered in Sunday on Sunday in his house in Costa Rica like you gathered here, we were all gathered together, not because of how we unified, but what Jesus has done for us and brings us together. And he, in those moments, that we are together like we are right now. He is interceding on our behalf with the Father. It never stops. But a, a priest and a priesthood that didn't know if their next breath was going to happen ceased. So can you think about the assurance this brings? That it's eternal, that it's forever, that Jesus is a high priest forever? It's very important. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to really stir and to, to point out. 
He makes it clear. Jesus' priesthood itself, it's not patterned on the old covenant priesthood. Rather, it is the culmination of that. The priesthood is not to be repeated. The sacrifices are not to be repeated. No human, but the Lord Jesus Christ is to intercede for us. There is no one to mediate. We have one mediator, one, one mediator. There's one priest in the new covenant, and it's Jesus. We have one mediator, and his name is Jesus Christ. I am not your mediator. I am not your mediator. Our elders are not your mediator. Our staff, our other pastors, are not, we're not your mediator. Now, we will and we gladly intercede on your behalf. But you don't get to God through us. You are in fellowship with the living God through one priest, and his name is Jesus. And that is something to be joyful about. That is something to be confident in. That, that's hope. It's feeling of hope. Why? Because I'm going to die. If I was your mediator, if I was the one and you come next week and I'm not here, what do you do? Who do you go to? Who do you hold on to? Where's the hope? It's lost. That's why it's very good I'm not your mediator. That's why it's very good none of us. Only Jesus. Why? Because it's eternal. Why? Because he resurrected and the grave is empty. He is the only priest there is. Indestructible life. That's what he says, right? Now, imagine again the audience. This, this had to be overwhelming for their mind. Like overwhelming to the Jewish mind. If they, wait, if we think about it, really... It's overwhelming to any mind. When you think about it, when you allow it to settle in, there, wait, there's one person? There's one person? According to the power of an indestructible life, one person has mediated the way to God for all. One. Jesus. And now you may be having difficulty grasping or believing this reality. There's one person and his name is Jesus. You may be thinking, all oh, this sounds really good, but Jesus Christ cannot possibly know how I feel. He cannot possibly be sympathizing with me as, he, as you say, he intercedes right now. He, with my, he can't possibly understand or know my weaknesses. He can't possibly open a way to God for me. And if we have that attitude, and if that's the attitude that we have, if that is the position that we take, we attempt, may attempt to keep some type of fringe connection uh, in relationship or some semblance of relationship to Jesus around as though he's you know, some type of good luck charm that, that we bring out when we think there's nothing else. But, our, but if we're doing that and really seeking to find the answers to those spiritual questions, which every one of us will ask at some point or another in life, and if you think you can have some kind of new experience or hear, hear some new message from God or, or stumble into some new means of appeasing God, and all will be well if you do that, what we are seeing and what we learn and what we know is that there is no other but Jesus. 
What you and I need is the assurance that Jesus Christ alone, through his work at the cross and his indestructible power of his resurrected life, only can you and I draw near to God as one that is forgiven and justified in his presence. And that produces hope. Because I'm not trusting in anyone else, and I'm not, especially not in myself, which is so easy at times. I put myself on the throne of my heart and not Jesus. Because I think I know better than the creator and the ruler of the universe. And the beauty of this is God has given us an oath that this is true. So let me show you this last part. Verses 18 to 22, starting in verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. I love this part of our text. This and the next part. I love it because it's so rich. It's so rich with the blessing, the assurance, the confidence I love how it speaks to us in our our footing, that our footing can be solid on a solid rock that's immovable. And here again, the point is that the ceremonial law, which was the basis of the Old Testament priesthood, had inherent limitations built built into it by God. He planned it with limitations because one of its jobs was to do what? To point forward to the real work of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And what it was going to accomplish. And he, and he uses this. And he talks about this. And you notice the necessity of the change of the law and the priesthood is shown to us in both negative and positive terms. The negative in verse 18. He says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Can you imagine the force of that kind of language with the Hebrew Christians? To describe the commandment of God as weak and useless. To to say to them as they're reading this letter, as they're hearing it, the the command of God is weak and useless. Even the ceremonial aspect that the commandment must have been absolute, this must have been absolutely unsettling to them, which is his point. He's trying to kind of deconstruct what they've known for centuries and what's been passed down as tradition into a new and more blessed assurance and hope for them that will last forever, not just year to year. So he's trying to do this. To speak of the law of God in that way, again, the author, he's shaking them up, right? He's saying, look at this. The law was weak and useless in the sense of gaining in and of itself peace of conscience from sin and assurance of salvation. That's his point. Not, again, not that the law was completely and utterly useless. It's that it couldn't lead us into the perfection of salvation. He says that's the negative reason why we needed a great high priest, a greater priest than what they've ever known. But then he gives us the positive in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. And it would have been incredibly negative and depressing if he stopped there, right? But on the other hand, a better hope. Now that perks us up. Wait, there's something better? We always like that. There's a better hope? All I have is hope. But I, I could use a better hope. Very few people turn that down. Through which we draw near to God. Look at what he says. His point is that in the new covenant, in the ministry inaugurated by Jesus Christ, it was designed to bring a better 
hope. And the reference there is to our assurance. The argument is that the old system was unable to bring conclusive assurance to the believer. The year after year, as we thought about this, the sacrifice after sacrifice, the different priests, the repetition, you have to believe, we have to believe. I mean, even I didn't live that, but I still think like, they have to be questioning that. Like, like in the day-to-day, th- from, from the time that they go in that pilgrimage to Jerusalem and had that Day of Atonement till the year, you know, to the next year, some point in that year, they had to ask themselves, is this really working? Am I really saved? Am I really assured of that hope? And the author of Hebrews is exposing that question because he knows they're asking. And he's answering it with a powerful, wonderful, beautiful truth. In the new covenant, we make our way once to Calvary. And we see the Father pour out on the Son the sins of all. And we see the Son who dies once for all. And we do not see a sacrifice repeated year after year after year. And the scriptures will testify to that in other places. We see a sacrifice which was so complete, so complete, so effective. That it not only covered all of our sins that we've already determined as we looked in the mirror, but it covered all the sins of all those who would believe in Jesus Christ, both now and forevermore. And we praise God for that. And we realize we have something which is a much more stable, sure ground of a better hope. I mean, don't think that there is any sure ground or, or of the sense of the acceptance of God other than Jesus Christ. There is not. There is not. There is no other ground of acceptance with God than through Jesus' shed blood. We don't sing, what washed me white as snow. Remember that hymn, what washed me white as snow? It was Jesus' blood, right? Jesus' blood washed me, not, not, not our efforts. My efforts didn't wash me white as snow. Not my sacrifices didn't wash me white as snow. Not my goodness or my morality. None of those things washed me white as snow. Only the shed blood of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, washed me white as snow. And for that, we have an eternal hope that is forever because He is a high priest forever interceding on our behalf right now. Then we get to my really favorite part, verses 20 to 22. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's God's mic drop moment, right? It's like, it's walking away. Did you hear that? How powerful and beautiful this is. The author points out that this better covenant is seen because God gave this priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ by an oath. None of the others None of the others from the tribe of Levi, the the priests that came through Aaron, none of those, none of those were given their priesthood with an oath of God. Never promised the permanent priesthood. Never promised the forever priesthood. Whereas the Lord had said to the Lord Jesus Christ, I've sworn and will not change my mind. You are a priest forever. For the author of Hebrews, the issue of assurance of our salvation 
is so important for our walk in our Christian life. It's not peripheral in the growth of our Christian life. Our everyday stepping in our Christian life, our everyday decision making, our everyday places that we go, words that we say, our everyday being transformed into the image of Christ. This assurance of salvation is not peripheral. It's not just something that sits on the fringe of our life with Jesus. It is central. It is so centered because we need that assurance that when you and I step out in faith with boldness that we don't have to fear the rejection that may come from the world that hates Jesus, therefore hates us, that we step with a boldness, with a belief and an assurance that our hope is settled because it's settled in a high priest forever, Jesus Christ. So the author of Hebrews knew that if they were going to go out, they were going to deal with and handle the things of life that happen here on a broken world until Jesus returns, they're going to need this assurance. He knows that for us to grow in that assurance, we cannot simply survive on a vague wish that we are accepted by God, which again, you think about the annual repetitive way of atonement could at times produce a vague wish that, man, I hope that worked. We grow in grace as we are assured with a spiritual certainty of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. It is forever. It is a forever certainty with a forever priest. And so growing in hope and assurance, again, is not a fringe issue. That's why this is so important for us. You may be wondering, how does this apply? It applies because it's so central to your everyday life. The day that God has given us, it's so central having this hope and assurance. So he's reminding us that only Jesus Christ and his finished work provides an adequate foundation for assurance. It's the only thing that produces, provides hope in all times. And then it compels us, that hope that, that gets placed down deep inside of us and it continues to kind of build up as we know more and we trust more and we believe more and we understand more about that hope that Jesus has brought and it's forever and ever and ever. And it's just welling up and welling up and eventually it compels. It compels us outward because there's nothing that gives a hope like Jesus Christ. There's no other person. There's no other thing. Only Jesus. So it compels us outward. To tell those who haven't experienced that hope. The hope that we have now. Verse 22. So good. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, you've heard the word guarantee. You know what that means. You most likely, if you've lived any length of time on earth, you've been hurt by the guarantee of others or businesses or corporations. So you understand this. Guarantee is a legal term. It's a legal term that means whatever the promise might be, it will be fulfilled on what? On the basis of the dependability of who? The guarantor. That's why we can say, yeah, I mean, there was a guarantee there with that, and, but the guarantor wasn't was on the right side, and therefore the guarantee didn't happen. In this case, look at this. Jesus Christ is who? He is the guarantor or, or the one who signs. He is the one who signs on that, on that contract or on that letter, on, on that document. He is the one who signs. How does he sign? Doesn't sign with a pencil. Doesn't sign with a pen. Doesn't even sign with a feather. What does he sign with? His own blood. 
Jesus Christ signs that with his own lifeblood, the pure, precious lifeblood. He signs the guarantee with the lifeblood that all the promises, all the promises that Scripture shows us, that Scripture teaches us, that Scripture reveals to us of the gospel, in the gospel, will come through. All of them. Because of the guarantor. Jesus is the guarantor. Can you ask for more assurance than that? Is there anything in your life, my life, is there anything in our lives that produces that type of assurance? And my answer would be no. There is no one, no thing, no place, no nothing. Only Jesus brings that hope and assurance. He is our guarantor. He is our high priest forever. We have a hope that is eternal. Let's pray. Father, God, my heart and my hope and desire is for those who don't know that hope, either watching online or in this room, that today is the day that they see the outstretched hands of Jesus Christ in front of them. Today is the day that the Spirit ministers that hope into their life as they respond, recognizing the inadequacy of ourselves, recognizing the sin that is separated, but seeing forgiveness, acceptance, adoption, seeing the hands that were put on the cross, seeing the staining of the pure blood that that is the only way that we can be clean. God, let that be the picture as they surrender and believe in Jesus Christ today that your salvation would come to hearts and minds of men and women and they would come home and they would have the same hope with other brothers and sisters who have received that so it might compel us and move us outward. It might strengthen us and unite us in the midst of being pressed in, we know the hope keeps us from being crushed. God, thank you for this hope that is forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I get to finish and share with you some very special work of God that's happening in and through our church a couple of weeks ago. Our beach baptisms, we had 20 people declare and testify and witness to that hope, to that very assurance of hope that only comes through Jesus Christ. And we get to celebrate that as they join the multitudes, us and others, in declaring that hope and assurance to the world. And so check this video out and celebrate with me.